There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. You're the man behind the Mukka clock tower. I was um, the first uh, individual placed by Deutsche Bank on the ground in Dubai. So tell me about the doomsday fatwa. Every time you deposit a dollar in the bank and they can lend $10, they've created nine new dollars of new money which is the definition of riba. Where I live, there is a, a chicken and chip shop. It serves amazing chicken. It looks to me like a form of political money laundering. Muslims worldwide have come to the realization that the prevailing capitalist economic system does not serve us ethically. With its interest-based banking and casino-style financial instruments, a devout believer has no choice but to attempt to escape its haram even if that hinders the progress and prosperity of our daily lives. In recent years, Islamic finance has been touted as an ethical alternative, a way to escape the haram, riba-based economy. Some have even presented it as an alternative to financial capitalism. The rationale behind these products is to accommodate the detailed Sharia rulings on trade and Islamic scholars have endorsed products that Western financial institutes and governments have embraced. My guest today was an Islamic finance industry insider. Haris Arfan is currently the CEO of Cordoba Capital Markets. He has 29 years of investment banking and consulting experience. He was the former co-founder of Deutsche Bank's world-leading Islamic finance team and CEO of Deutsche's Islamic finance subsidiary. He is the former global head of Islamic finance at Barclays, then head of investment banking for the Rusmiller Group. He's also the author of Heaven's Bankers, Inside the Hidden World of Islamic Finance, a critically acclaimed bestseller about the Islamic finance industry. Haris Arfan, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah and welcome to The Thinking Muslim. Assalamu wa rahmatullah, thank you for having me. Well, it's great to have you with us. Now, Haris, I don't know if this is an exaggeration, but you're the man behind the Mecca clock tower. Why have you come to regret your part in financing the tower? Take me through your journey. Well, that's a heck of an opening line. Um, <laughs> and I, the first thing I would say is that I'm not the man responsible for the Mecca clock tower. Unfortunately, I do have a part to play in the project right. that was responsible for detonating the hills around Mecca into a billion pebbles 
and historic old forts and buildings and a lot of our history and in its place constructing what frankly is a monstrosity that dwarfs the reason for being there, which is to visit the Kaaba. Mm. Um, so let me take a step back. Yeah. I was um, the first uh, individual placed by Deutsche Bank on the ground in Dubai. Mm. Um, so I was sent on an expat assignment from the London office back in 2001. And uh, the day I arrived, or rather two days after I arrived, 9-11 happened. Right. And so um, there I am, uh, you know, sitting in a, a service department trying to get my things together, just having arrived in the country. And I got a call from my wife saying, switch on the TV. And we watched these events unfold. And of course, what then fo followed was a huge repatriation of money back from the Western world to the Gulf. And therefore, real estate, stocks and other assets took off in price. So um, naturally, uh, there was a lot of building work going on. Uh, Deutsche Bank had just arrived in the region. We were the first investment bank to set up in the Dubai International Financial Center. And we, um, we were asked by a lot of clients who came to us and said, well, it's lovely that you're here, Deutsche Bank, but can you do these deals that we want to do on a Sharia-compliant basis? Right. And being investment bankers, we know how to blag our way through anything. And we said, yeah, sure. <laughs> but the reality was, of course, that Nobody had ever done that kind of thing before. So we actually learned at the foot of the, the major scholars, uh, Sheikh Hossein Hamid Hassan, uh, who is considered by many to be the grandfather of modern Islamic finance, was the, the architect of our, of our uh, Sharia financial program. And one of the first deals we were asked to do was we were, we were the first Western investment bank to be invited into the holy city of Makkah to do a real estate sukuk. A sukuk is a type of Islamic bond right. or capital markets instrument. So a debt instrument that's listed on an exchange. And so nobody had been asked this before. Uh, and this is a pretty sophisticated piece of, of financial engineering. Yeah. Um, so of course it was very exciting for us. And I was probably caught up as a junior banker in that excitement that here we are, we're going to finance the construction of a tower facing the Kaaba. And it had been sold to us as this is, a, this is an amazing uh, development. Uh, people will be within, you know, 100 yards and maybe 50 yards of the mosque. And, uh, you know, it'll be a, a cutting edge building and uh, it'll be iconic, et cetera, et cetera. Of course, we never step back to think about socially, what does this mean? Hmm. I think when you are caught up in the era of financialization, which is what's happening right now, the financial economy is much more powerful and much more influential than the real economy. Right. The real economy is real goods and services. It's your barber on the high street. It's a factory that makes widgets. It's real goods and services, apart from financial services, that are being sold in the market. Yeah. The financial economy is supposed to be those services that serve the real economy and lubricate the cogs of the real economy. But it's become an industry in and of itself. It serves itself. It serves the people who run it. It serves the central bankers, which is something that I want to talk about today. Yeah. So when you're caught up in that, uh, you often don't see the long-term implications of what it is you're doing as a financial transaction. So there we were, very excited, creating this complex financial instrument listed on, a, on an exchange somewhere that would finance... It was actually the Safa Tower, which is one of the seven towers of the Abraj al-Bayt. Mm. Um, and I was one of the, the structurists, which is basically a sort of financial engineer who creates the financial instrument that funds this development. Yeah. 
And all the while not realizing in my excitement that actually I'm participating in the destruction of my own heritage. And it's something that I, I, I look back on with, with great regret. Um, I think that it's something that would have happened inevitably, whether I was there or not. Yeah. Uh, but it's also um, something that I think should serve as a warning for Muslims generally and for people generally, that this is the effect of financialization. This is the effect of what I call high time preference. And that's something, again, that I want to talk about a bit later. So your basic argument is, or your basic point about your days with Deutsche Bank is that you didn't consider the social impact, the historical impact, the Islamic moral impact of your decisions. Is that a, is that a fair summary of your, yeah. Uh, so you work for Deutsche Bank and you argue that big investment banks abuse the concept of Islamic finance. I mean, how do they do this? Well, I guess it pays to have a little bit of a history lesson here. I would say that the probably the first instance of the modern Islamic finance era is an experiment called the Mitghamar experiment. Mm. Mitghamar is a town about 80 miles from Cairo. And a, um, uh, an economist created a, effectively a social bank, a social savings and investment institution. Uh, and uh, depositors would put their money with the bank. That money would be used to fund local industry directly and the profits would be shared with depositors. Right. So this is a, a very pure form of mudaraba, which is a- No riba. No, no riba involved, no interest involved. This is a split of profits, and that's right. a real risk-sharing, real economy transaction, which is very Islamic. Mm. Um, and that morphed eventually into a sort of social bank, social savings institution. Though I think there were eight other similar institutions in Egypt at the time. Uh -huh. um, and from there, this was sort of proof of concept. And from there in 1975, the first major uh, Islamic bank was formed in Dubai called Dubai Islamic Bank. Uh, at the same time, the Islamic Development Bank, which is a multilateral institution was formed. And now you see the development of commercial uh, Islamic banking. And at that point, you need to be regulated as a bank by the relevant authorities. Mm. And if you are to be regulated as a bank, then you must be a fractional reserve institution. Right. What does that mean? Mm. Well, it means that for every pound or dollar you deposit in the bank, they have the right to lend out more than is deposited right. in the bank. Yeah. That's the fraction, the fractional reserve. So for example, they may, may lend out $10 for every $1 that's deposited. Well, in other words, yeah. they've created nine new dollars from nothing. Really? It's a form of alchemy. It's, it's money from nothing. Right. So if you were to ask a, a sensible person who not, knew nothing about, who was not formally trained in economics, yes. what do you think of this? They might reasonably conclude it's a form of fraud. And yet this is perfectly lawful. Do all banks do this? All banks do this. British banks, American banks. Every bank in the world that is regulated by a central bank is a fractional reserve institution. Right. Let me explore this fractional reserve idea. Because when I first heard of it, it wasn't very long ago, uh, it just blew my mind, right? So, okay, I go to a Islamic finance institute and I say, I want to buy a house. Uh, so presumably they will lend me money from deposits. So someone has excess surplus wealth and they want to uh, keep that wealth safe and they put it into that Islamic bank, HSBC, Oman, or whatever it may be. You're saying to me that it's not only the 
money, the deposits that pay for my mortgage, there's there's other money involved in that, and this money is what just comes out of nowhere. It is. I mean, you could you could literally say that it is right. uh, created at the stroke of a keyboard right. uh, click. But why? What? Why does this exist? So uh, if, let's go back to uh, gold in the 16th century. Hmm. If you had some gold and you wanted to store it safely, yeah. you would go to your local goldsmith and you'd say, can you put this in your vault okay. and give me a piece of paper, a receipt that shows that I have put some gold with you. And he gives you, you put, let's say you weigh five pounds worth of gold and you put it in the vault. He gives you a piece of paper that says, I owe you five pounds of gold. Right. All well and good. Now you know that this is evidence that you own this. And it so happens that the goldsmith has a good standing in the community. Everybody respects him. They know he's an upstanding guy. Hmm. He's a safe guy and he's good for his word. So you can actually circulate this piece of paper in the economy right. as money because it evidences that you actually own five pounds of gold or you can have it divisible. He can give you five pieces that say, I owe you one pound. Right. Now, again, this is all very good, but at some point the goldsmith says, wait a minute, this guy who's deposited money with me never comes back to redeem his gold. Mm. So I could actually issue more pieces of paper than I actually have deposits. Now he's created a fractional reserve. Right. So the practice became that he would issue more uh, receipts into the economy and it was, it was made legal. And eventually we saw institutions like Bank of England, which effectively codified this and institutionalized this process. Hmm. So it was possible for a bank to maintain a reserve, but to issue more money that was actually stored in its vaults. And this is the, the origins of the fractional reserve system. Now, as long as the government found some way to regulate the amount of money that's in circulation, everybody believes this is all well and good. An increase of money supply in the economy means more. Credit creation means more. Wealth creation means more. Jobs means more growth in the economy. Yeah. And we now have a situation where the controls are so loose that this financial economy has far outstripped the real economy. And every now and then there's a crash. Every now and then things get too... Uh, too impossible to control and we have crashes like the 2007 2008 crisis yes and in such a case you will see lines of people outside banks saying no no something's gone wrong i want my money back in fact we saw it very recently with silicon valley bank except the crash happened much faster this time because it was no longer about neighbors in the street saying to each other hey have you heard about our local bank and what's happening we better run to the bank uh, or catch the bus or whatever and get there and stand in a queue and redeem our money yeah. now you get on your mobile phone app and you just say, boop, 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 I'll have my money back, thank you very much. Because right. I heard a rumor on Reddit that it was about to crash. Right. Right. So now we have uh, runs on a bank that can happen instantaneously. And this is a function of the fractional reserve system. So this fractional reserve banking underpins all Islamic banking? All banks, including Islamic. Right. So what does that then mean for the Islamic quality of these products? Like what are you... What's, what's your argument about the Islamic quality of, say, an Amana finance mortgage? Yeah. There, there was a time that I felt, and this is going back 20 years when I, I started the Islamic finance team at Deutsche Bank, yeah. that I felt that if you're a practicing Muslim mm. and you're ideologically aligned with your faith and you wanted to invest in a way that didn't compromise your principles and you wanted to offer financial products to other Muslims and to people who wanted to invest and participate in the economy in a halal way, yeah. in an ethical way, whether or not they were Muslim. I used to think it was possible to do that. 
And we actually had a bunch of bankers who were working at places like Deutsche Bank who were young, practicing Muslims, technically capable, ideologically aligned, and they were creating some very interesting product. But we never really stepped back to think, actually, what is the fundamental basis on which we are manufacturing these products? Because it's all very well that we've mastered the elements of fiqh al-mu'amalat, the mm. jurisprudence of transactions, of commercial and financial transactions, so that we can create these complex contractual structures that we call mudaraba, musharaka, murabaha, and so on. And we have these contracts that we vetted by theologians for compliance with Sharia. And we say, yeah, this contract I'm using to finance the building of a house or financing the purchase of a home through a mortgage mm. is Sharia compliant because the contracts are an ijara with a diminishing musharaka or some other combination. But we don't step back and think, hang on, what's the basis on which this bank is able to give money for the financing of this house? Basis is money creation through the fractional reserve system. So again, every time you deposit a dollar in the bank and they can lend $10, they've created nine new dollars of new money, which is the definition of riba. Because you've created money from nothing or money out of money. That's an excess, that's a surplus. That's how riba is defined. So the entire banking system is by definition based on riba. Wow. And if you have Sharia compliant contractual structures on top of that foundation, you still have a non-compliant system. So as much as I tried to convince myself for many, many years, and this is a form of cognitive dissonance, mm. that we can do this, we can do it better, and we can make it halal, actually Islamic banking is an oxymoron because you cannot be Islamic and be a bank because a bank is a fractional reserve institution that creates money from nothing, which is riba. I mean, that's outstanding. I mean, so a person who today wants to purchase a house, a Muslim living in Britain who wants to purchase a house, are you saying that they should regard all Islamic banks, Islamic finance instruments in the same way as a, as a traditional high street bank, as a riba-based bank. And so these banks and these instruments are haram? Well, here again, I, I demonstrate some cognitive dissonance. Mm. And it's very difficult for me to say that that is the case. Yeah. First of all, um, is there a viable alternative? Today, I don't believe that there is. Mm. Secondly, are there many Muslims working in the Islamic finance industry who are trying to develop a more wholesome product? Yeah. Not just halal, but tayyib. Not just permissible, but wholesome. Right. And the answer is yes, there are many Muslims that in, in that industry. And I also believe in supporting them to achieve those objectives. So these Muslims are creating the equivalent financial products, products without the fractional reserve no, under the hood. They are, they are they're within the banks. Yeah. they still have fractional reserve under the hood. Okay. But there are many Muslims now who are creating new startup Islamic fintech firms right. who are trying to create financial investment products and financial uh, financing products, which are not just contractually to the letter of the law, but also within the spirit of the law, i.e. not based on a fractional reserve system. Right. But that's a very, very, very tiny minority. So I would say that we should as Muslims support the Islamic finance industry, but we should be very discerning about what we choose to support and choose to walk away from. Now, having said that, if I want to finance my house, mm. I have very few alternatives. Mm. And even I have used an Islamic bank to get a mortgage. 
because I felt that the alternative would be to go to a large high street bank uh, who have no interest in or affinity in uh, affinity with Muslims yeah. or the halal economy. So I would rather support those who do have an interest in that and are trying to move in the right direction. Unfortunately, again, it's cognitive dissonance. Unfortunately, I don't really feel, I feel like uh, in Topol, when the, the main character says, uh, on the other hand, mm. on the other hand, mm -hmm. I'm, in my mind, I'm constantly trying to reconcile my actions with the reality of what's actually happening. And I, would, I used to champion the Islamic finance industry, particularly the Islamic banking industry, for a long time, for many years, until very, very recently. But I now feel that it's, it's so stagnant. It, it's so unwilling to change from the inside. And I've tried to change it from the inside. Right that I can no longer hand on heart say that I can continue to support the Islamic banking industry. And I would like the Islamic finance industry more widely to move towards its ideals of a risk-sharing, real economy-based uh, services industry. Now, we're a long, long way from that. And I think a lot of what young entrepreneurs are doing now to create fintech companies, Islamic fintech companies, is a, a good step uh, towards that ultimate aim. But I think we're a long way from that. And from a regulatory perspective, are they allowed to do that? Can you set up Islamic, purely Islamic financial instruments that are not based on this fractional reserve banking? Uh, yes, you can do that. It would yeah. be effectively a hundred percent reserve institution. So oh. every pound that gets deposited, yeah. a pound is invested somewhere else, right. and it's not lent somewhere else yeah. at interest. It is actually invested somewhere else. Okay. Now, actually, that that's a key point because. Unfortunately, I see very, very few Islamic fintech firms who act as financing firms mm. who do finance businesses on a risk-sharing basis. Right. Many of them use a form of contractual structure called commodity murabaha. And it doesn't really matter what that means, but let me give you an analogy. Mm. In the Middle Ages, of course, the church uh, banned usury. Usury was forbidden mm. in Christianity, always has been. And the way that financiers would circumvent that in the Middle Ages was to say, well, what if I took this contract and this contract and this contract, three different contracts, each with different aims. Hmm. So it was called contractum trinius. And each of them was not alone with interest. But when I put them together, they effectively allow me to lend and get interest in return. Hmm. Now, the church at the time said, well, these contracts are not in and of themselves, non-compliant with church law. So no problem, you carry on, which is exactly what's happening. And, and hence, we now see the development of the modern financial services industry. Uh, and even the church itself has turned a blind eye to interest. By, I think, 1917, the Vatican themselves were investing in interest-bearing bonds mm -hmm. on their balance sheet. Yeah. So that creeping normalization of usury has meant that original church law has been completely disregarded. And I fear that's what the Islamic finance industry has been doing for the last 60 years since the Midgummer experiment in Egypt. Yeah, so uh, you mentioned a couple of times uh, risk sharing. Um, what is that? So explain that. To okay, me. so if you're a business and you want to raise money, let's say working capital, mm. I'll give you a specific example, actually. Yeah. I've just closed a transaction with an international agribusiness. And... It so happened that the CFO of this business was a Muslim, mm -hmm. although the business is not halal, specifically certified as halal in any yeah. way, yeah. although the product that they sell, which happens to be Brazil nuts, mm -hmm. is halal. Yeah. And 
he said, look, this company, I don't want to put debt on its balance sheet. I want to burden it with security and collateral and a burden for its, its future running. Nor do I want to dilute the equity of this business and bring in new shareholders. Mm. So how do I raise working capital for this business so I can buy raw material, process them in my factories and sell them in the market? And together we worked on a, a form of instrument that we call a profit participating note. So in format, it's a little bit like a bond because it gets listed on an exchange. But in practice, what happens is the investors who put money into this bond are actually participating in the financing of the business. So that money is directly used to purchase a raw material, which happens to be raw Brazil nuts mm -hmm. in a factory in South America. It's processed in that factory. It's packaged and shipped. And the profits are then sold, uh, are then shared between the investor and the company. That's a pure risk-sharing structure. The investors are now participating in the activities of that company. They're not guaranteed a return. They're not guaranteed an interest rate. But it so happens they're, they're doing pretty well. They're earning low double-digit returns. That's their yield. So this is a perfect example of a real economy risk-sharing financial instruments. So they could lose all of that money if the company in goes In theory, down. they could. Right. But the, the, I think the beauty of doing financing in this way is that as a financier, you take much more care in doing due diligence on the activities of the company. You live and breathe what they do. I mean, the CFO and I have been talking constantly every day for the past year and a half, I think. And that's not what bankers would do. Mm. Bankers don't care what's ha what happens next. Because if it goes wrong, they'll repossess everything you own and take the shirt off your back. <laughs> Whereas I, as a financier, do care what the business does. So I am much more heavily aligned with the business. I'm incentivized to make sure that they do well. If they do well, I do well, my investors do well, the economy does well. This is a much more wholesome and ethical way to run an economy. Today, because of financialization, I mean, financialization has, has led to the monster of inflation because we have this cheap debt, borrow, spend, consume model. And what we, what we call QE, quantitative easing, is very colloquially, I'll call it money printing. It's not actually money printing. It's the press of a button. It's, it's the press of a button yeah. where a central bank increases the bank reserves hmm. in their accounts. Yeah. Banks now have more money to, to spend on, or they can lend it. Long-term interest rates decrease over time as a result of QE, in, in, uh, and consumers are now in, in, incentivized to borrow, spend, consume. Mm -hmm. And so we buy stupid things that we don't need. We change our mobile phones, the Apple 23 for the Apple 24, or whatever it is that we don't need to change every year, but we do. We change the car on our driveway every year with a new PCP agreement. Yeah. Uh, you know, we refurb, refurb our homes because we can, we can extract equity from our homes at, at low interest rates. So this is a form of financial insanity. Mm. We're desertifying our planet. We're polluting our planet. We don't discipline our nuffs. We don't we don't practice suburb, we don't practice deferred gratification, we don't invest for our future, we just borrow, spend, consume. That's what we do today, we have high time preference. So as a result, we are uh, in this cycle whereby we, we borrow as much as we can and, and bankers don't care who they lend to anymore. They don't do the due diligence on how they lend. Mm. And venture capitalists, when they invest in a business, because inflation is so high, money sitting in a bank account is just devaluing at 10% per annum. So throw it away, throw it into businesses that don't make any sense. You hear the word blockchain, metaverse, uh, you know, web 3.0, that's the new buzzword, let's invest in that. Mm. Throw money at it, it doesn't matter what it does, it's the new whatever. 
So I think we are in a financial economy that encourages poor financial decision-making. I think if we returned to a real economy, risk-sharing basis on which to finance businesses, we would have a much more measured and calculated process whereby the financier is fully aligned with the financee, the one who is receiving the money. It's not a borrower-lender relationship anymore. It's a partnership arrangement. In fact, musharaka is a form of a financial contract in Islamic finance, which means partnership. Mudaraba is also a, fine of, a type of arrangement. Prophet himself was a mudarib mm. because he took in capital from people who had capital, the Rabb al-Mal, the Lord of the debt. And he was the mudarib, the manager of the money. And he would invest it into caravans and manage that capital and then split the profits with the Rabb al-Mal, with the owner of the capital in a real economy, risk-sharing way. So I'm a firm believer that if Islamic finance is to be successful and true to its roots, it has to reflect that same risk-sharing mudaraba model, whereby I, as the manager of money, am a true mudarib, and I have an amana, I have, there's a trust on me mm. to make sure that the business is successful. Not that I walk away and say, I want security and collateral and I want and this is, this is what happened in, in, the, in the Middle Ages, debt peonage. Mm. Eventually, I would take collateral in the form of human beings. Slavery becomes a way of life. So this is a move away from that. Right. I may sound very pretentious here, Harris, but um, a relative of mine said, I've got like a spare £100,000, like it's in the bank. Yeah. I can't take interest. So it's just sitting in the bank. Inflation is, is cutting into that mm. money year on year. What do I do with the money? So they've come to me to ask me where, for, a, for some advice. And I haven't got a clue about Islamic finance or finance in general. I mean, so what would you advise? Such yeah. a, I'm sure you have lots of people who come to you and, and, and suggest and, and ask for your advice. Like, what would they do? Yeah, it's a very difficult question to answer because we don't yet have trusted institutions who can manage money in such a way. Mm. And I'm in the lucky, very fortunate situation where I've been an intrinsic part of this industry for over two decades. So I know where to go if I want to invest my pension, for example. Yeah. Most people don't. We're beginning to see uh, the uh, green shoots of uh, these early stage Islamic finance, Islamic fintech companies okay. that offer investment platforms. Now, what's yeah. fintech? What's fintech? Fintech is financial technology. Okay. So you may have used um, uh, mobile app-based services. Monzo. Like Monzo Revolut. and Revolut, exactly okay. right. All yeah. Right. So. You use your mobile phone now to make uh, contactless purchases mm -hmm. and view your bank account and do foreign exchange and so on. Right. And that's really financial technology. Mm -hmm. It's a move away from traditional high street banking right. where you go into a branch and you talk to your bank manager. Sure. Uh, there's a place for both, but FinTech has allowed the financial services industry to develop at a much faster pace. Yeah. And it, it meets the needs of the modern you know, millennial and Gen Z generation. Yeah. So um, these FinTech companies are starting to establish uh, platforms which allow Muslims and people who want to invest in an ethical way to find halal and ethical product. There's a snag. The snag is that there aren't very many investment products out there. And a lot of investment products and financing products are being touted as halal, mm. but still have this commodity murabaha. Remember that discussion we had about contractum trinius, the modern mm. version? Yeah. They still have this contract, sorry, commodity murabaha, sometimes called tawarruq, if you see those words in the small print, run a mile. Really? Because as far as I'm concerned, that's a form of deception. We're trying to fool God into believing that this fancy contractual structuring on pieces of paper 
somehow makes this financial instrument halal. And I'm, I'm very disturbed to note that a lot of new Islamic fintech companies are, are jumping on this bandwagon of let's create a new Islamic fintech company and capture this new market because people are moving away from Islamic banks and traditional banking. Mm. And what they're doing is trying to replicate what the banks already do, right. which is either fractional reserve or using contractual structures like commodity murabaha. Once again, remember those words. If you see that in the small print, as far as I'm concerned, that's a deception. Harris, there are many scholars, Islamic scholars of high repute, who endorse these products and some of them sit on the boards yeah. of these Islamic finance yeah. uh, companies. Um, are you, in effect, saying that these Islamic scholars have all got it wrong? I'm not saying that because all, the vast majority of scholars in this industry that I've met and I know hmm. are, first of all, highly competent individuals okay. and, and secondly, individuals with a high degree of integrity. So I certainly wouldn't say that. What I would say is that um, they are cap captive to the system, right? much like economists are, and perhaps in some cases they can't really see beyond that narrow focus that they have. Right. Um, and in order to stay employed, they appear to have little choice but to endorse the products that currently exist. The second thing I would say about that is, in many cases, they have put provisors on these products, which are often ignored. So right. for example, in the case of commodity Muramha, which is often described as tawarruk by many banks, it's not important what the specifics are of the, of the transactions involved in it, but basically it's a case of smoke and mirrors. Mm -hmm. So you will have, for example, a lot of metal being traded on metals exchange between different parties. And what the scholars say, particularly if you look at the standards published by an industry body called AOFI, mm -hmm. they say, as long as it is not organized tawarruk, meaning that the buyers and sellers of these metals on an exchange have not been fixed and organized in advance, predetermined in advance, it's a halal transaction. And that is actually true. I agree with that. Okay. Despite my reservations on commodity murabaha, mm. actually, that is a correct assessment in my opinion. The problem is that all the banks practice organized tawadro. So they have a fatwa for one thing and they practice something else. Really? And that is my problem with that. So why don't these scholars discuss that and, and you know, object to their name being used? besides these products that are problematic? It has happened. There's a very famous case. In 2011, I was approached by Goldman Sachs to launch, to help them launch a sukuk, an okay. Islamic bond. Wow. And it would have been a large transaction, I think one or $2 billion or so. And um, they said, I said, well, that's interesting. I'm, I'm willing to act as a consultant on this project. I was in a consulting role at the time. And they said, and I said, okay, first of all, what form of structure are we going to use here, contractual structure? And they said, commodity muraba. Yeah. I said, mm, that's problematic. Let's go down a different route. They said, no, 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 no. We have to go down this route because we've already got pre-approval internal. Mm. I said, okay, but there are many provisors if you use this. And that's the only basis I can work on this. Mm -hmm. And I said, first of all, what's the money going to be used for? They said, and these literally are their words, don't ask too many questions. <laughs> I said, whoa, I'm out of here. That's a Goldman Sachs yeah. motto. <laughs> I cannot work on something where you don't even want investors to know how the money is going to be used. Wow. That's an absolute uh, you know, red flag ah. for Muslim investors, for halal investors. Right. 
So um, they went ahead and tried to use this structure and they tried to launch it. And predictably, it was a failure. It's the only time there's been a benchmark size, meaning sort of billion dollar sized Sukuk in the international markets that has failed. Goldman Sachs failed to launch. And many of the scholars who were involved in that had their names attached to the offering document to investors said, well, I didn't say that. Oh. I spoke to them in private. I spoke to a number of them in private. They said, no, no, I didn't say that. Right. And I didn't sign up to this document. Mm. And I, I said in, my, in our meetings with these bankers, I said, no, this can only work if you do X, Y, and Z. And they didn't follow X, Y, and Z. So what we see uh, in public is not what, what necessarily happens in private. Right. And there are many instances, I've had many conversations with scholars who feel that their views were not adequately reflected in the final product. So when I used to work with Sheikh Hossein Hamid Hassan, he used to, uh, he used to use the analogy of, I'm a doctor, he would say. Mm. And if the patient comes to me with an illness, if I don't have a full uh, uh, reading of his history and symptoms, I cannot give a solution. Right. You have to divulge all the information on this transaction to me before I can opine on it and work with you as the architect. And that's a, uh, that's a, a, a principle that we followed with Sheikh Hussein. Mm. Uh, and it's why I believe we were success successful at the time. Now, other things happened after that, which we can talk about later, which led to a spoiling of the market. But in general, I feel that it's important that when bankers and financiers work with scholars, that they work with them from day one, not at the 11th hour, and suddenly go out to them and say, hey, wave a magic wand over this transaction and call it Sharia compliant. That's not going to happen. Yeah. Or they don't have them intimately involved in every detail of the financial transaction. That's interesting. I mean, how much can we blame scholars? I mean, I've often come across very good scholars who understand the reality. As we know, one of the requirements of issuing a fatwa or, or making ishtihad is tahqiq al-manad, understanding the reality. And I know some scholars who really go out of their way to understand the reality in, in great depth. But then there are other scholars who just don't appreciate the reality or rely on third parties to explain the reality to them. Because, of course, the quality of their Islamic verdict is going to be dependent on how well they understand, in your case, fractional reserve banking and, and what comes under the hood of these Islamic finance products. I mean, have you come across scholars who investigate on their own, who, who really try to inquire about the details of a product? Because often there is a blame on some scholars for not doing that. Mm. Uh, yes, I have. Um, first of all, uh, most of the scholars that I've worked with uh, would generally be considered to be you know, highly competent okay. and understand the yeah. detailed mechanics of financial, modern financial instruments. Right. Um, they tend to have a view on certain things, such as the role of commodity murabaha, particularly in developing the financial services industry in the 1980s, mm. when it, these modern financial instruments started, started to come through. And they said at the time, we will allow this structure to be used for an interim period so that you have a foothold, so that Islamic finance develops. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, that just became the default mm -hmm. for the next 40 years. Right. So that's a shame. Um, Regarding scholars who really go to the nth degree, I mean, I have come across young, dynamic scholars who are engaged in business themselves right. today who are at the forefront of some of the recent innovations in, for example, cryptocurrency and Bitcoin and so on. Mm. And whilst we've had some non-technical scholars, social media, media scholars, I call them, who have given fatawa on uh, you know, Bitcoin is haram because, and then a whole bunch of propaganda, which is frankly nonsense, mm. which clearly shows they haven't understood either Bitcoin mm. or modern 
financial system or the modern economic or monetary system. Right. In contrast, these young, dynamic, technically able scholars have dissected a complex subject like cryptocurrency and understood it to its nth degree and read the white papers and really participated in the industry and say, hang on, actually there are aspects of this that may be halal for this, this, and this reason. Yeah. And they, they talk through it very, very uh, you know, productively and, and in a detailed way. So tell me about the doomsday fatwa. Yeah, so, um, so shortly after the Makkah Towers project, yeah. when Deutsche Bank had established a foothold in the Middle East, um, we created a, the atomic bomb of the industry, hence why I call it the Manhattan Project. Yeah. And uh, Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Um, this was a particular technique that my team at Deutsche Bank created yeah. to replicate the financial return from any financial instrument whatsoever. So think of the most haram thing that you can think of. Right. Pork belly futures, right? We could replicate the return through what's called a total return swap of pork belly futures and give that as an apparently halal return right. to an Islamic investor th through what's called an orphanized vehicle. Yeah. It's a way of distancing the investor from the underlying asset far, far away from them. Okay. In the middle, you've got this black box that swaps away the return of the haram instrument and gives them the return of something else that they legally own. So the black box contains a perfectly halal asset. It might be metals on an exchange, copper on the London Metal Exchange, right? That's what they own legally. Uh -huh. And yet the investment bank, Deutsche Bank, swaps away the return in this black box and gives them the return of something else, which is specified on a, on a terms and conditions sheet. So we were able to create all kinds of exotic investment products, what we call structured investment products. Mm. And these are typically the kind of things that high net worth individuals with Swiss bank accounts would invest in. Uh, all, all kinds of very highly complex derivative instruments. Now, 
one of the reasons why we created this, remember going back 20 years, yeah. the Deutsche Bank team was young, dynamic Muslims, practicing Muslims who wanted to do the right thing. Yeah. One of the reasons why we created this technology, this atomic bomb, was to harness the power of atomic energy, which can be used for good things and bad things. And so we wanted to actually create a hedging platform. But what do I mean by hedging? Well, if you're a business that manufactures a product and sells in different markets around the world, and all of your costs are in euros, but all your revenues are in dollars, you have an exchange rate risk, mm. right? So you need to hedge that foreign exchange risk. Uh, you need to make sure that you are not hemorrhaging money when your currency plummets in value and your costs become much higher than your revenues. And that's a legitimate reason to hedge your, hedge your business risks. So we created this platform in order to create a hedging uh, instrument and a treasury management platform so people can hedge against macroeconomic risks like uh, commodity prices or uh, uh, you know, uh, foreign exchange rates. That's a good purpose. Unfortunately, the generic fatwa that we had issued off the back of this black box technology could be used to create all kinds of crazy products because we could replicate the return of anything hmm. through a total return swap. So there, are, you know, there we are, our sales guys are running amok like Rambos firing guns everywhere throughout the Middle East selling exotic uh, interest rate derivative products and you know, not literally pork belly futures, but that kind of thing. And it all came to a head when there was a press conference given by my then boss uh, who sat alongside, I think it was a, some Goldman Sachs hedge fund type guy. And um, it was for, I think, a, a hedge fund managed by Goldman Sachs. And um, this black box was issuing a Sharia compliant structured note which replicated the return of that hedge fund. And my boss made a, a very interesting uh, comment to the press at the time. He said, we, meaning Deutsche Bank, will create uh, conservative products for conservative customers and aggressive products for aggressive customers, which is the worst thing you can say right. when all the Muslim world is watching this, mm. saying, yeah, we can create alcohol that's kind of you know, not alcohol and kind of is alcohol and we can make it halal. Guys, please, this is the wrong thing. That's what happens when you have Islamic finance that run, that's run by non-Muslims. Wow. They don't understand. They never lived that experience. Never sat in our, in, in, you know, they never walked in our shoes. Yes. And they don't realize that's the kind of comment that can get you into a lot of trouble. And that did cause a lot of trouble. And a scholar at the time, a guy called Sheikh Yusuf De Lorenzo, heavily criticized in public in an open letter to Sheikh Hussein Hamid Hassan, who was, as I say, the godfather of, of, uh, of the modern Islamic finance industry and our, the architect of our product. Mm. And he said that you are making a huge mistake here. You have created the doomsday fatwa, mm. which kind of ties in with the whole Manhattan Project image. Yeah. And uh, you know, this, is, this will wreak havoc in the Islamic finance industry. And he was right. I mean, all sorts of dubious product were created off the back of this technique. And uh, Sheikh Hussein, quite rightly, I mean, initially there was quite a spat between the scholars, as you can imagine. Mm. But eventually, you know, um, they dealt with it in a very scholarly way. And Sheikh Hussein made sure that subsequently any product that was issued off the back of this platform had to go through him. Even the marketing, even the wording of any adverts that were used to describe a product, he had to see it and he had to vet it. And from now on, it could only be used to reflect underlyings which were not repugnant to Sharia. Harris, when I listen to you, I think of where I live, there is a, a chicken and chip shop 
it serves amazing chicken. Uh, but everyone knows it's a cash-only business. Everyone mm-hmm. knows it's a cover for money laundering. Uh, they make their money through illicit work and they wash it out through selling chicken. And it's actually really good, mm-hmm. I have to say. If you ever in my neck of the woods, I'll take you there. But no one says it's halal. You know, the imams of the mosque condemn it. The, the business owner probably knows what he's doing is wrong. But it seems like in your universe, or at least the universe you used to live within, anything can just become halal. Is that an exaggeration? I am reminded of a comment that was made to me by the CEO of an Islamic fintech firm. Yeah. About a year ago, um, he said to me, and I'm only quoting his words, so <laughs> nobody sue me, please. He said to me, he thought that the manner in which Islamic banks in the UK were hemorrhaging money, and bear in mind that over a 15-year period, they have made 200 million pounds of losses, despite being a monopoly position, mm. despite being in very favorable economic conditions. That's the loss they've made cumulatively over 15 years. Yeah. He said, it looks to me like a form of political money laundering. Because it's as if a government decided overseas somewhere, someone said, I have $100 million burning a hole in my pocket. I need to spend it. Buy me a bank in London. Make it halal. Make it Sharia compliant. Get me whatever stamp I need. And then it doesn't really matter to me the quality of people that I have or the products that I put out there. We'll make the right noises to the regulator. We'll say that we'll serve the Muslims underserved Muslims, Somalis in Birmingham, Bangladeshis in East London, Pakistanis in, in Manchester, and we'll give them halal product. But really, we don't care. Again, these are not my words. Yeah. He said to me, it really does feel like a sort of offset program where one party decides to say, I'll put some money into you if you put some money into me, yeah. right? And we'll just wash it through the system. Right. That's what the Islamic banking industry feels like to him I'm not saying what it feels like to me in this country. And it does feel to me as there's a lack of authenticity. And when you look at the senior management, not one of the CEOs Mm. of the British Islamic banks, there's five of them in this country, is uh, an Islamic banker by original trade. They're conventional bankers. They're non-Muslims. They don't really have a shared experience with people like me and you. They didn't look like me or you. Mm-hmm. And it's no wonder that as a lack of their, as a result of the lack of their cultural affinity with the people they serve, they don't know what they, the customers want. And the customers complain. They say, oh yeah, I went to so-and-so bank and I tried to get a mortgage, but it was more expensive than you know HSBC or Lloyd's or whatever. And they have these fancy Arabic words, but it just seems to be the same thing as me with the word interest crossed out and the word profit put in. And, and I sympathize with that. They haven't won hearts and minds of their customers. Yeah. And what I'm trying to do now in the industry, and it's a lonely battle because it seems very few people want to do it. Yeah. What I'm trying to do is create a true alternative to what the Islamic banks do. But getting funding for that is it's, it's a very anti-establishment product. So the Islamic fintech firms that are trying to do this thing, have a, they don't have access to capital. Right. And at some point, somebody will wake up It'll probably be a non-Muslim VC firm mm. uh, that will wake up and they will say, wait a minute, this is a market of 2 billion people and they're completely underserved and they're being sold a deceptive product. Mm. And they intuitively know that it's a deceptive product. And they know not to buy that product. In the UK, for example, 
there's only a 2% penetration rate wow. of all Muslim households using an Islamic bank account. That's a ridiculously small number given a monopoly position and given the heinousness of the crime of riba mm. in Islam. Yeah. It's one of the most, it's, it's alongside shirk and murder riba. We don't even think about that. Yeah. How many khutbas have there been in mosques about riba? Almost, I can't remember a single one, mm. not a single one. Yeah. And that really upsets me. So we need to get that message out there. We need to tell people that there is an alternative and you need to support those alternatives. You need to clamor for change because the current crop of Islamic banks have not brought that change and they're not serving our communities. And that message is coming through loud and clear. Yet we do have governments passing legislation to accommodate the contemporary Islamic banking scene. I mean, I was amazed to hear that Russia very recently, and Russia doesn't have a very favorable, let's say it's, its view towards Muslims has been quite problematic over the last decade or two, yet it recently changed its legislation to accommodate Islamic banking. I mean, what's going on there? You know, I'm actually not very hopeful, and the reason why I'm not hopeful in general is because whenever I see new legislation to accommodate Islamic finance, mm. it's almost always to accommodate banking. Mm. And therefore, it's accommodating a fractional reserve system. It's just supporting that system. Right. So it's not a true, in my opinion, tayyib, uh, wholesome alternative to uh, interest-based fractional reserve banking. Right. And as long as we're kind of, uh, I guess, tweaking the edges of the regulatory system, mm. adding a couple of little laws here and there to accommodate Islamic products within banks, I don't think we're really going to move the needle. If we want to move that needle, actually we have to tear up the rule book and say, no, it's not real Islamic finance is about this. It's about the real economy, real jobs, real businesses. It's about finance being the servant to the real economy, which is the master. Mm. And at the, at the moment, it's the other way around. Um, so I, although you know, I, I work with regulators, I work with government bodies, and uh, I'm appreciative of the efforts that they make, I don't think that they truly understand what it is Muslim customers want and need. And it will take some breakthrough product. I hope, inshallah, it's mine. I hope people make dua for it. I would really like it to be mine, but I'm happy if it's somebody else's. It will, make, it will take somebody's breakthrough product to demonstrate that we can finance businesses in a totally halal and tayyib way and be commercially successful. Inshallah. So it will take that breakthrough product before people say, wait a minute, this is what we needed all the time. Mm. Why have we been talking about banking all the time? Mm. That's not finance. That's not the roots of trade in Islam. Yes. Trade is halal, riba is haram. We know that. So let's go back to trade. Fantastic. May Allah make it successful for Inshallah. you. Um, earlier on, when you talked about the clock tower, uh, you said that it contravened, it may have followed the letter of the law, at least the the transactions may have followed the letter of the law, but it contravened some of the goals of the Sharia, uh, some of the aims of the Sharia. Can you expand on that? What, what do you mean by the aims of the Sharia? So I think this is coming back to spirit of the law versus letter of the law. Right. We, we drafted very complex contracts that contractually met uh, the, the constraints of fiqh mu'amalat. Mm. But actually, when we step back, we had not taken into account the social implications, the maqasid, the objectives of Sharia. Yeah. Uh, and the objectives of Sharia mean that we need to be more holistic in our thinking. Right. So whilst we may have ticked the boxes that this contract met certain criteria, we didn't think to ourselves, is this good for us? Mm -hmm. Is this good for Muslims? Is this good for humanity? Right. 
is the fact that we destroyed all the hills around the city and pieces of our history. Is that good for us? Yes. Is the fact that we chased short-term profits over long-term gains good for us? Is the fact that we demonstrated high time preference over deferred gratification, low time preference, good for us? Is the fact that we rewarded, we rewarded a small group of people who sit at the top with access to money preferentially when it's printed, good for us? So I think that we're in a situation where the financialization of the economy has benefited people who sit at the very top. So for example, when a central bank decides to print more money, QE, quantitative easing, means that the more money in circulation means that the value of money has diluted. We've reduced our purchasing power. Right. So those who sit close to the money spigot, this tap, this faucet of money pouring out of a central bank, the financiers, the central bankers, the rich people mm -hmm. at the top of the tree who get access to the cash mm -hmm. before anybody else can get rich because they can buy assets and asset values go up. Stock, real estate, art, vintage cars, these all go up in value and they become richer as a result. But by the time that money has trickled down to the rest of us, people on you know, lower wages who are struggling to make ends meet, their wages haven't increased, but the cost of everything has increased. Now in this country, it's nine or 10% per annum. Mm. So that's why we have a cost of living crisis. And we can pretend that it was the Ukraine war. We can pretend that it was Brexit. We could, no, the real reason is money supply increase. That is always, always the re reason for societal decline, which is a very bold statement to be making. But if you look back in history, any time that we have been, we have had a gold standard, a sound money, we have had periods of history that are characterized by peace, by stability, by moments of scientific and cultural breakthrough. So we look at uh, the Islamic dinar, the golden age of Islam for 700 years. Yeah. We look at uh, the height of Rome, Byzantium. We look at the second half of the 19th century. These are periods when the world experienced a gold standard and trade was borderless and fluid, minimal tariffs. We had t time for humankind to advance scientifically and creatively and culturally. We advanced humanity when we were on a gold standard. In contrast, ever since Roosevelt expropriated citizens' gold reserves from 1933 onwards, and Nixon removed the gold peg in 1971, we have had a massive decline, a massive increase rather, in inequality mm -hmm. between rich and poor. Mm -hmm. We have an unequal society. We've also, not coincidentally, but directly as a result, had the most environmentally polluting and bloodiest century in history. Right. We've mechanized warfare, we have allowed governments to finance a state of perpetual infinite war mm. because no longer can they exhaust their own coffers, their own treasury to finance war. Yes. They can now exhaust the wealth of you and me and everybody in a country mm. by inflating, by printing money. And that's why Nixon depegged from gold in 1971 to finance the Vietnam War. And now we have been, we have been in a state of perpetual war since then. So having an unsound fiat money, mm. fiat money is money that is decreed to be so by a government, so that's yes. dollars, pounds, euro, yen, et cetera. An unsound money is one that can be printed at will, that is pro-inflation, that is pro-riba, that is pro-war, that is pro-environmental pollution. Mm. 
That is, all of those things that increase GDP, this one blunt measure, gross domestic product, that we think measures human progress. We say GDP has gone up and everybody says, yay, GDP has gone up. We've done a great job, guys. But GDP does not measure uh, human happiness, literacy rates, suicide rates, divorce rates. It measures the exchange value of goods and services, not the experiential value of human life, of animal life, of plant life, of this planet's life. Mm. So fiat money has directly contributed to climate change, for example, is my belief. And I mean, I think there are strong arguments in favor of a return to what I call a sound money. I think gold is impractical. And I have come to believe that Bitcoin is the most Sharia compliant form of money ever invented in the history of humanity. Uh, and that is, that is what I advocate now. Um, we had a discussion about Bitcoin on a previous show with you, but it seems to me that your criticism is actually a criticism of capitalism. It's a criticism of where capitalism has, has led us and, and uh, the stage of capitalism we're at is creating this boom and bust economy, an economy yeah. of inequality, an economy which loses sight of some of the sublime objectives human societies should be seeking. Uh, so it's a very wholesale criticism. And I suppose the counter argument, or at least I'm going to see it in my comment section, will be from some Muslims who say, well, wait a minute, are you not, uh, Harris, just do you not have a problem with trade and a problem with profit, a problem with wealth creation? Mm -hmm. Are you just endorsing a Islamically tinged socialist type of economy, which puts, uh, which which puts the brakes on the type of wealth creation that capitalism has undoubtedly uh, created in the last in the last century? I am not. Um, I strongly believe in free markets. Hmm. I strongly believe in wealth creation, right. if done in a way that accords with the law of Allah, hmm. and. Um, in fact, there is a very famous hadith about price fixing. So prices of commodities were shooting up and the people approached uh, Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam yeah. and uh, they asked him to fix prices. And he says, I will not do it because it is Allah who is responsible for prices. Right. And he did not want to be responsible for performing an injustice on the people for which he would have to answer on the day of judgment. Every experiment that we have seen, and in extreme forms, it's taken the form of communism, for example, mm -hmm. where we attempt to fix financial or, or commodity markets or fix prices or fix the economy or centrally plan the economy mm. has resulted in disaster, yes. in mass starvation even. Clearly, that is not the system that Allah intends us to use. Mm. Similarly, the modern form of capitalism is not capitalism as I define it. It's capitalism on steroids. It's turbocharged. It's intended to benefit a very, very few people at the very top. Capitalism is a good thing. Capitalism is a fair distribution of wealth, of wealth creation across all levels of society. Mm. Everyone can have a basic decent standard of living and a closure of the inequality gap. I believe capitalism is something that Allah actually wants us to do. Mm. He wants us to create wealth in a good way and use it in a good way. And there are checks and balances there. We have to protect the weak and vulnerable. There are hadith about 
not meeting the traders, the caravans outside the city limits, mm. so that you, you're not able to advan uh, take advantage of prices in bulk before the commodities reach the marketplace. This is a form of protecting the consumer. There is a famous example of Imam Abu Hanifa, who uh, uh, he, he, was, he owned a textile shop in Kufa. Uh, he was a textile trader. And a woman came to him with a piece of cloth, I think it was silk, and she said to him, uh, I would like to sell you this cloth, how much will you give me for it? Mm. Um, he says, how much do you want? She said, uh, 100, was it dirhams? I think it was dirhams. Mm. Uh, he says, no, it's worth much more than that, which is an amazing thing to say. I mean, why would you as a trader say, no, I'm going to pay you more? Mm. He said, no, so he didn't want to deceive the woman. He, he, had a, he had superior knowledge. He had the advantage of being an expert in that field. Mm. And the woman was vulnerable because she was not. Right. He could not take advantage of that. And she said, okay, 200. He said, no. Eventually, they settled on 400, I believe, which mm. is a huge change from where she was originally. Yeah. But that's an idea of protecting the weak and vulnerable, and that's inherent in our, in our trade structure, in our fiqal mu'amalat. But that's not capitalism. I mean, that's, capitalism is laissez-faire, as we understand it. It's, if you define capitalism as uh, 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 profit for the benefit only of shareholders, mm. the pursuit of profit only for a small group of people who are the holders of the capital, the shareholders, then that's what modern capitalism is. But capitalism, according to Islam, is not that. It is the free pursuit of profit in any field that is halal, uh, without fixing prices, within certain boundaries, such those, as lack of exploitation of people who do not have uh, uh, knowledge or who are vulnerable or who are, who are weak. So within the Islamic capitalist system, mm. we have institutions like endowments, al-qaf. We have institution of zakah, the wealth tax. We have other institutions that allow us to ensure that everybody is protected at every level of society. And I firmly believe that if we had implemented those rules, that we would not have the level of inequality that we have in society today. I mean, I agree with everything you've just said there in terms of the dynamics of an Islamic economy and how it functions. But I, I suppose it, it's, I feel somewhat um, reluctant to label that an Islamic capitalist system because for, for me, capitalism is fundamentally without restraints. It's without state control. It's without state intervention. Of course, yeah. you know, if you're going to uh, regulate the caravans... What is good about in, state intervention, though? Well, you're right in saying that there are some aspects of state intervention, the socialist ways of, you know, of, of, uh, of commanding production and supplies, highly problematic from an Islamic perspective. I, I completely agree with that. But just a simple hadith you mentioned about how do we prevent... Uh, some traders accessing the caravan before it enters Medina, you know, there's going to have to be some form of state regulation. There. Sure, Zakat, yes, Zakat yes. over yeah. the last, you know, before the the demise of the Ottoman Caliphate or after devised Ottoman Caliphate, where we didn't have a centralized government and Islamic government before then, uh, we used to have the regulation of Zakat. Zakat yep. was a, in effect, a tax. Yep. It's not a tax, but it's a tax being paid. Mm -hmm to a tax collector and the central government would dispose of those funds mm -hmm. to the categories mentioned in Quran, yeah. right? And because they've got the bird's eye view and they can uh, allocate those really important charitable resources to the right people. So in Islam, there is an, there's a strong element, mm. not a socialist element mm -hmm. for sure, but a, a strong uh, governmental component within the economy. Now we can debate, and I'm sure scholars debate how much 
should the government intervene, you know, in the case of price fixing, mm -hmm. very little. Yeah. But, you know, there is a necessary role for government. Whereas my understanding of capitalism, and, and to be honest, I'm not an economist, but my understanding of capitalism is that it is very much about leaving any form of government interaction yeah. in the economy. Isn't there a... Yeah, I think that's yeah. a modern interpretation ah. of, of capitalism. Yeah. Uh, I, I think a classical interpretation would be very different. You're quite right that a, a trusted authority of some kind is required to ensure that laws are followed and there are checks and balances and the weak and vulnerable are protected. Of course, 100% agree Judges with that. Judges and... Yes, yeah. exactly. On the other hand, there are certain things I believe that should be separated from state. Mm. And money is one of those things. Mm -hmm. I firmly believe that money itself, this medium of exchange, this unit of account, this store of value, should not be regulated by a government. It's too important for a small group of people who don't have infinite knowledge of things right. to be able to regulate. And we have consistently seen uh, central banks and governments make a pig's ear of regulating money. Mm -hmm. Monetary authorities have consistently messed this up. We've seen it throughout history, particularly in the last hundred years. The moment you allow a government to, for example, Nero and uh, Emperor Nero cl um, clipped a gram off the, I think it was an eight gram coin of gold at the time. Right. And you can probably chart the decline of the Roman Empire from that point. <laughs> Because at some point you end up in a spiral of lawlessness and yeah. riots in the streets and people not being able to afford bread. Right. Uh, and, and that is what happens to all empires ultimately when they start to devalue their currency because they knew or they thought they could get away mm. with financing whatever white elephant or war that it, it is that they wanted to finance. So I firmly believe that uh, uh, money should be separated from the state. Mm. And that's why I believe in a decentralized form of money, as gold was once mm -hmm. when we had a gold standard, but it is really no longer, it's, it's too impractical, which is why, again, I come back to the idea of a sound, hard money like Bitcoin. Mm. And I think we need to explore Bitcoin probably in another show, but I think it's a really interesting subject to explore further. Can I ask you about interest and riba? Now, we know that interest is haram in Islam. Uh, but we also know that uh, there's not a single Islamic country that can escape the riba trap. Mm. I mean, um, let's consider Erdogan in Turkey. Um, for many years, he was promising to lower interest rates. I think interest rates, I mean, are much higher than they were in the West, you know, 17%, I think it was. But anyway, he, he lowered it down to something like 11 or 12%. And um, the Turkish economy went south and he's had to... Uh, uh, return back to orthodox policies and he's hired this uh, uh, chief, you know, the governor of his, his uh, central bank, who's now returned the economy back to uh, the, the sort of Keynesian model of raising interest rates to deal with inflation. So even someone like Erdogan, who, relatively speaking, is the most, in inverted commas, Islamic of the, of the leaders, or at least has some level of Islamic thinking about these sorts of matters has not been able to escape the riba trap. Are we now doomed to just accept that riba interest is so ubiquitous, we have to accept this type of system uh, henceforth? It's quite possible that we will have it for all of human history going forward. Hmm. 
And at the same time, I'm optimistic that we have it within us as, a, as the human race mm. to fix this problem. I believe a solution already exists. Right. Um, I think that Erdogan made the classic mistake of returning to the comfort blanket of orthodoxy, of economic orthodoxy. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's a shame because he could have been persuaded otherwise. I felt the same about Imran Khan uh, when he was prime minister of Pakistan, mm. that he had an opportunity, Pakistan was at its lowest, uh, lowest uh, state yeah. uh, in economic terms. How many IMF time. loans have they now sought? Uh, it's, I can't even count how many yeah. there are. Yeah. And they always, uh, they're always in the situation where they are almost, their arm has been twisted, they've got a gun held to their head and you'll have to take this loan or else. Mm. I, I believe that the IMF is, that's it's really the manifestation of evil in this world. It's, uh, it leads to a, an allocation of, a reallocation of resources from the global south to the global north. That seemed to be its primary purpose. Right. The stated purpose is of course development and doing good stuff in the world. Yeah. But the actual empirical evidence shows us that the global north ends up massively exploiting the global south. Mm. And this will never end. And if we want this to end, we have to stop following the dogma of orthodoxy, economic orthodoxy. Mm. And economics is dogmatic. There's no science in modern economics. Right. It's a belief. Uh, I call them priests speaking Latin because they obfuscate. They create a layer between themselves and God, so the lay people can't understand what God is saying. This is what Harjun Chang talks about, right. I think. Right. Yeah. So why, why have we allowed economists to dictate uh, how our, our lives are determined, frankly, because finance pervades every aspect of our lives. Mm. These priests who speak Latin have uh, used jargon and words that we don't understand. Mm. They've convinced us somehow that we need to take these loans and commit to a policy of austerity in order to pull ourselves out. And um, by the way, in the meantime, can we have some of your minerals and can we have some of this and some of your cheap labor and you know, manufacture these, these footballs for us in, in Sialkot and whatever. Mm. So this is a massively exploitative situation and the rest of the world is really not calling them out for this. And right. uh, we perpetuate this. Um, we create alternative narratives. A good alternative narrative is in Afghanistan. Mm. In Afghanistan, the narrative that you'll see on CNN, on BBC, is that women and girls can't be educated. And of course, that's a tragedy. Mm. We must educate women and girls. Mm. I'm not saying otherwise. But the other narrative that's been completely ignored in this process is that last winter, the winter before last, $7 billion of Afghani reserves were frozen yeah. in US banks mm. by the US Fed. And the Afghani people starved to death in a freezing winter. They didn't have shelter, they didn't have food. I have not seen a CNN or BBC report on the freezing of $7 billion of their own money by a foreign government mm. who didn't like the new government. Now, that's a, a manifestation of evil, if you ask me. So coming back to escaping Riba mm. and the Erdogan issue, I think, as I say, Erdogan resorted to this comfort blanket. Yeah when instead he could have taken a radical step, as I think Imran Khan could have done in Pakistan. That radical step could have been, and I'm sorry to keep coming back to this, could have been something is fundamentally wrong. We have got nowhere else to go. We've got nothing to lose. So we may as well try a radical alternative. Mm. 
And I, I think that the experiment that's taking place in El Salvador at the moment, for example, is a very exciting one. El Salvador has decided yeah. to go full Bitcoin uh, as uh, legal tender in the, com- in the country. Mm. I think that's a, that is a choice that countries in the global south need to make. They need to say no to the IMF. They need to say no to the freezing of their own money in a foreign country and have a decentralized currency that they alone have custody of. So have you been following uh, the BRICS developments? Obviously, as we're, while we're speaking, uh, the BRICS countries have come together to, uh, to, uh, to host their annual conference in South Africa. And there is a lot of discussion about de-dollarization. Uh, as yet, they haven't got to the point to create a BRICS currency. But do you feel that's looming? Do you think that uh, the global South are now coming together. I mean, today there was an announcement of the expansion of the BRICS. Saudi Arabia, UAE have joined it. Do you think the tide is turning and and the American hegemony uh, and its dollar hegemony is now inevitably going to decline? So I think it's inevitable, yes. Yeah. But it's going to be bloody on the way. Right. Because the moment somebody says, I don't want you to sell you my oil in dollars, I'll sell you it in rubles or one or some other currency or Bitcoin, yeah. is the moment you get invaded. Right. And assassinated. Saudi Arabia have been talking about doing this. They have been talking about it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, Libya tried it and see what happened there. Mm -hmm. Um, So I I think it is inevitable. uh, But as I say, it will be problematic on the way. I think this is a healthy debate amongst the BRICS. Mm. I'm slightly concerned that they will end up concluding something that is a variant of orthodoxy. Right. So they may end up concluding, let's have a sort of Eurozone equivalent or a Euro. Uh, and I think that would be a mistake because that's just, uh, that's just a repeat of, uh, fiat currency. I would like them to, to be radical and say, actually, it is time that the world had a sound currency, because if we look at empirical data, if we look at 5,000 years of human history, not just the last 100 years of, uh, economic data, much of which has been expunged from the record books, mm. otherwise we wouldn't, we wouldn't keep repeating you know, financial crises. If we looked at that 5,000 years, we'd say, hang on, something good happened whenever we had a global gold standard. Yeah. Is there any way that we can repeat that? What are the characteristics of money that require us, that we're required to implement if we want to have a healthy, vibrant economy and progress uh, amongst humankind? Mm. So I, th- I hope that the debate amongst the BRICS starts to transition in that direction, but I don't know. Harris Efran, Jazakallah for your uh, input today. It's been really, really fascinating. Jazakallah and a pleasure to be here. Thank you very much. Please remember to subscribe to our social media and YouTube channels and head over to our website, thinkingmuslim.com, to sign up to my weekly newsletter. Jazakallah Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. 
Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.